0: Um, So I just want to introduce um, Cassie briefly. Um, Cassie is a reader at the Department for Health Sciences at the University of Bath at the moment, but will be moving to Durham later in the year. Um, and i let Cassie introduce what she does research-wise um, herself. Okay, perfect. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I realise it's sort of the end of the day and getting to the end of the week as well, so I doubly appreciate you being here. Um, the title of the talk, I was sort of doing it in a little bit of a rush. Uh, I looked back to see what the name of the unit was, and I was like, oh, we could just sort of flip that, make it into a little bit of a question. So I feel sort of slightly wedded to it now but what i want to achieve through this talk is really just to create space over the next you know 45 minutes for us to ask ourselves this question really and and, um, have more of a dialogue about it my research spans sport and health sciences social gerontology and health geography as well and you'll see examples kind of coming from those three areas as we go through so without further ado are we really advancing methods in qualitative health research When we think of the methods available to us, okay, so the tools, the techniques we can use to go out and collect qualitative data, there are many. There are lots of things that we can do. There's obviously some overlap on some of those. And that will dictate the type of data that we get and the meanings that we can then draw from that. But when we focus in on health research in particular, it's perhaps received a little bit of a hard time in the sense that the focus seems to be mainly on interviews and focus groups. That's the kind of bread and butter being used. And certainly that is, has been termed like the gold standard of qualitative research. I kind of think let's, let's not discount it. It's really, really important. But it was back in 2002 that the assertion was made that you know, by discounting these perhaps other three broad categories of research data, we're using the preca- we're sort of um, relying on the precariousness of a one-legged stool rather than the stability of all four. We're just focusing on one area. And I don't know that too much has changed really since 2002. Certainly there has been a growth in other forms of, of data collection, other techniques, other methods being utilised. But I think we could agree that focus groups and interviews still dominate And as a consequence, I think our toolkit that we carry around with us as qualitative researchers can start to look and feel a little bit light. There's been almost sort of a growing backlash is maybe too strong a word, but definitely kind of a critique growing, I think, around this. This was um, a quote taken from a recent paper by Manell and Davis. They were focusing purely on how qualitative methods are being used within um, RCTs. So that was certainly the context. But I just thought it was interesting that when they were doing their search, they wanted to kind of explore how um, qualitative methods were being used and how they could be improved. And when they did their search, they purposefully uh, wanted to focus on innovative methods. And that led them to exclude uh, standard interviews and anything that drew upon focus groups. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, that now those two methods are not considered innovative if you want to talk about innovation within qualitative research we need to push those two things to the side and often I don't know who tweets here but a tweet here from an ethnographer Michael Atkinson over in the University of Toronto just recently I think this last week or so but interviewing has become to qualitative research methods what McDonald's is to culinary culture so is it time maybe for us to adopt a new toolbox and uh, push this one around with us a little more? Be more uh, have our new techniques more readily available to draw upon when we go into these settings and what could that bring for us? But I don't know that we need to kind of necessarily discount the old and bring in the new to this regard. There's certainly a, a kind of a culture of newness and um, Travers has described this as a cultural problem. I know some of the students were just involved in a a session around research funding, gathering research funding, Uh, and certainly as a qualitative researcher I think we're perhaps aware of a pressure to promote our work as something that's innovative, that's going to bring something different, bring something useful, Um, and this idea of newness, innovation, has been drawn upon within sort of marketing worlds. You see Daz. I mean, how long has Daz been around for? But if you can rebrand something as new, as innovative, as fresh, as moving something forwards, then it's more catchy, it's more appealing. But actually, when we think about that exploding toolbox with all the new methods in it, um, you know, there's nothing new about photography. Anthropologists have been using anthropo- uh, Anthropologists have been using photography for a very long time. Same with video. What is new, perhaps, is the way, the ease in which we can bring this into our research now, the mobile uh, equipment that we can use with it, the databases that we might use to store and manage that kind of data. So it's a lot more readily available, a lot more user friendly, you might say. But how new are some of these uh, methods that are framed as being innovative? So I rather like this um, quote here from Latham, who's kind of saying, rather than ditching the methodological skills that had been so painfully accumulated, you know, over years and years, we've been trying to refine interviewing focus groups, making them work really well. Let's not discount them. Let's not be dazzled and tempted by, uh, you know, the sort of lure of innovation. But let's think about how we can make these Uh, methods dance a little. How can we bring creativity into the methods that we're already using, the kind of the bread and butter, the gold standard. Uh, Let's not discount them out with the old, in with the new. So what I really want to just go through now is uh, the ways in which I've tried to make my methods dance a little bit as I've gone along. Sometimes it's been more successful than others. Um, And then perhaps hear from some of you as, as the presentation goes on into how you may have done the same so let's start with focusing on the visual and thinking about why imagery is so important within visual culture well we live in an ocular society everywhere we go we're being bombarded by visual images see the tube station bus stations television anywhere and everywhere it's all around us we also understand information and communicate information through visual means as well. I think more and more now we're seeing these kind of infographics to communicate complex information to people in a, a more sort of digestible fashion. And then, of course, there's the selfie stick. Who would have ever known that a selfie stick would be invented <laughs> and, uh, and sell as much as it does? There's tweeting, there's Twitter, there's Instagram. So imagery, photography, drawings, etc., is um all around us and significantly important. So it would make sense for us to perhaps start to incorporate that into some of our work. But images are also important because they help us to know our world, the world in which we're living in. And I really like this example from the Charlie Hebdo shooting in Paris back in 2015. Um, where the response to those shootings at the French satirical newspaper was for illustrators around the world to come up with images such as these. And what those images took on the meaning of is solidarity, um, you know, uh, having a free voice, not, not kind of caving into the attacks and, and all the rest of it. And it took off on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, it became really big, the sort of Je suis Charlie phrase and also the images and drawings that went alongside it and then more recently we have other sort of iconic images coming about here so it's how we start to know the world around us through the visual imagery it's also how we start to understand or not start to understand but how we continue to understand our bodies so we might, for example, look at the images on the front of uh, games, uh, DVDs. This one here aimed at teenage girls. If you just take a moment to think about the p- bodily proportions of the character on the front there, that's being projected onto a sort of f- female, young female market. Incredibly thin waist. Um, I mean, the, the body is just kind of not <laughs> not realistic, not representative of a normal body. Um, Oops, sorry. The sign there for elderly people, obviously being a social gerontologist, this is one I can't believe is still up on the road. Very stereotypical image there of what an older body is. It's bent over, it has a walking aid. (coughs) And an image here from the Invictus Games, which is a a large sporting event aimed at military veterans who have um, been injured while in action. And clearly, sort of images of a sort of heroic comeback of how one is expected to respond in the light of of injuries such as those. We might also start to think about how um, certain groups are represented by the media. So, as I say, I do some work within sort of sport and health sciences, and obviously, the differences in how the media represent male athletes and female athletes can be really quite striking so you just have a look there classic kind of representations of females versus males females you tend to get a lot more emotion a lot more passive shots research has shown that when it comes to representing males sorry oh, oh it's going the wrong way hang on Uh, When we go to male shots, much more active, showing strength, achievement, power, etc. Obviously I've kind of cherry-picked those images to make the point in this presentation, but there's certainly research supporting that. And another, I don't know whether to say favourite or bugbear, the kind of wrinkly hand image that you also see a lot whenever there's anything around older adults in the media. But I think what's interesting about this is how it's created a a kind of a response through the no more wrinkly hands hashtag that you now see on Twitter as well. So people being called out about this use of an image that just reduces the life of an older adult to just a pair of wrinkly hands. And uh, trust me, once you start looking out for this image, you're going to see it everywhere. (laughs) It comes up all the time. But I like that kind of call to action, that people are are responding to the images that they see as well. I just put a a search into Google Images under the word cancer. This is cancer. Um, I don't know if any of you are kind of working in this area, but you can see just a very sort of unidimensional projection of what having cancer kind of means and how we understand it. It's worth thinking as well about how the meaning of images can change over time. So the, the red bus um, is certainly an image that's talked about time and time again. And uh, the meaning of that has changed from pre-referendum to, to now. Um, and same with people. Or groups of people. so for those of you who aren't familiar, in the medal there is um, kind of champion road cyclist Lance Armstrong who'd won multiple uh, Tour de Frances and other elite races. Um, he'd also experienced testicular cancer, very advanced testicular cancer through the course of his career uh, and had undergone treatment to then come back, uh, you know the heroic comeback narrative again that we see so often in sports. Um, to go on and win more and more races. So he was a real figurehead for many people. You know, he stood for you know, kind of determination, beating disease, uh, disciplining the body. Of course, denying allegations throughout his career of, of blood doping. And that's since been very much called into question, as I'm, sh- I'm sure you're all aware. So I think images like this, their meanings change over time as well. And this is important. There's been work done on what these kind of stories associated with these images and also autobiographies associated with these sports people can do. So certainly looking at the example of Lance Armstrong, what was the kind of narrative around his cancer diagnosis, how he lived with cancer, how he made the comeback from cancer and went on to excel in his sporting career. It's just a little tangent there as well to sort of flag the use of autobiographies and qualitative research as, and treating them as kind of narrative maps that people turn to when they're trying to navigate a new condition or a condition that's new to them, I should say. Okay, so those are all the ways that I think images sort of proliferate our everyday lives. Why are they useful then to use as a form of data collection? Um, They can slow down the observer. I think sometimes when you're in conversation, you're kind of reacting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But having a a pile of images and having to kind of really look deeply at them and go back and forth uh, slows you down. That kind of interpretation stage uh, encourages a deeper reflection. And where I've tried to use them in particular is in capturing that kind of elusive... Sensory embodiment, really trying to encourage people to talk about how their bodies feel um, in fleeting moments, um, which can be pretty tricky for most people. It doesn't often come through that well in a life history interview, for example, so I'll come on to that as well. So, as a consequence, I try not to look at these as a replacement, but just as an additional layer of understanding um, that we can kind of layer on top of an existing method that we might be using. Okay, so just to draw upon um, one of the projects that I was leading where I used quite a lot of visual methods. Uh, prior to this, I'm not going to talk about that particular project today, but um, I used photo voice where you give the camera to the participants um, and allow them to take images and produce images that they believe are important to them. So you might say, you know, take five, ten images that uh, represent... who you think you are, you know, your sort of identity construction it has been used. That's a kind of a really good technique, which I'd be happy to talk about a little afterwards. But we didn't do that in this particular project. We were more trying to understand how people responded to the images that they were shown. So the design of this project was, um, we interviewed 50 self-identified physically active older adults, um, we also as part of those interviews went around with them to the places where they were active and took photographs and then undertook a second interview with them where they were looking but I'll t- talk to you about that in a moment where they were looking at the images and trying to, trying to describe how their bodies felt in that moment when the image had been produced we also used their stories and some of the photographs and filmings that we'd produced to Produce a short film which I'll share with you in a moment, which we shared in focus groups to try and understand people's responses to the moving stories. It was called Moving Stories because it was basically stories about moving. We were trying to understand not just older adults' experiences of physical activity, but also how other people responded to stories and images of older adults being physically active. So that was just a little background on the design there. These are the kinds of things that were produced. These weren't elite athletes, obviously, that we were working with. It's sort of your kind of everyday exercise There. I'm going to go slow again. Balls. We had a range of activities. I've just put a few in here. Swimming, golf, badminton, walking, all kinds of things. What we found first of all so you heard um, this is a, a caution I suppose the original plan was to go and take these images back to people and then have this kind of interview and we'd sit down and discuss them we found that became really challenging for a number of reasons often people finished their activity and then they just wanted to go they didn't want to sit and then trawl through a load of photographs the other thing is obviously now we've got our easy means of collecting digital photographs click 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 (laughs) it's really easy to suddenly end up with like a hundred odd photographs of a single exercise session and you find yourself sat there with scrolling on an ipad trying to kind of uh how did you feel when you were doing this so it it kind of it was a method we were testing out and we learned pretty quickly that this was not the type that worked well so what we did is adjusted it into an email interview where we would select a much smaller number of images showing people in diverse positions and at different periods within the exercise session. And then with this kind of short intro, please look through the photographs that we've taken of you being active. Use them to help you respond in your own way, in your own words to the question, what is it like to you know, dance, play badminton, um, hill walk, etc.? And it was kind of drawing upon... Um, a sort of phenomenological approach to a certain extent, just really trying to get to that basic understanding of what does it feel like, what's it like to do this. And these are the kinds of responses we get. So here's a lady. I can hear loud cracking from my knees. I like to try, but it's really difficult here. I blame the smooth stacking chairs, as I can do it better at home. So you can see we're starting to get at some of that sensory. Um, experience there some of the responses were much longer some were just a line Uh, i think that was fairly typical we became quite conscious you know certain people found this much easier to do this task much easier to do than others here's an example from one of our sea swimmers so again the feeling of buoyancy talking about the pressure of the water around her body but also Situating herself within space and place. And this is something else that we've become increasingly interested in. So talking much more now about the environment around her, the formation of clouds, how blue the sky is. Um, Talking about wanting to go out on her own, again, the water. Looking at the sea life, etc., and tension within her body disappearing. So this was important for us because by this point we'd already done really long life history interviews with these people and we could see quite clearly that this type of information hadn't been forthcoming in those um, settings but I think the images encouraging that kind of slow reflection and really asking people to focus in on what did your body feel like at this moment uh, kind of opened the door a little bit on some of that information. So, as I mentioned, the other way in which we used this was um, to produce a short film, which I'm going to share with you now. It's only 10 minutes. I thought it would be sort of a little lighter on a Thursday afternoon. Um, And the purpose of this film was to share in focus groups with, um, well, we did focus groups with young people, people in midlife, and also older adults as well, to understand their responses to physically active older adults. And there are some questions at the end, which then obviously formed the discussion that followed. That video had uh, two purposes, as I say. On the one hand, it was uh, another means of collecting data. We used it to elicit discussion within a focus group setting. Um, But we've also used it as a way to communicate our research findings. So a lot of the issues that were being picked up there had come through from the analysis of our data. I particularly liked, for us it was an opportunity to show counter-narratives around physical activity in older age that I think so often just sort of fall, The sort of assumed older adults are just involved in physical activity for health benefits where you know certainly Gordon on his bike is still all about the exhilaration and the thrill of it, I think that's quite unusual. Uh, Derek with his badminton had a very competitive edge and then there were issues around confidence, the kind of life history aspect of having negative PE experiences and coming Um, to sport and physical activity quite later on in life and also overcoming challenges, uh, hip replacements and periods of, uh, you know, feeling quite depressed, etc. So all of that had come through in our email and we were very kind of deliberate and specific in placing it in the film uh, to try and communicate that and, and elicit discussion as well. And we drew on Arthur Frank's um, socio-narratology kind of framework or approach to understand this data, really thinking about not just stories as a kind of a, a portal into somebody's mind and how they experience their world, but what is the power of stories and what can stories do um, to the people that hear them? Um, and we've written a chapter around that. I won't go through those, I mean, there's a kind of a certain power and evocativeness, I think, to sort of stories that are presented on film. Um, It connected people, it also disconnected them. One of the comments that we had from um, an older gentleman was, If you've produced this film to try and counter negative stereotypes of ageing, I don't know why you've put the seated exercise classes in there. You felt really kind of strongly that that didn't belong in there um, at all. So, yeah, some really interesting discussions uh, that came through from the focus group by using that as a tool. Okay, so the second way that I've... Or we, certainly it's always a team effort, these things, isn't it? As we've tried to make our methods dance, if you like, is... um, By introducing movement and space, and this is calling much more a a sort of upon geography, literature, etc., through the use of mobile methods. So go along interviews when you might be walking with someone as you're interviewing them. Uh, There's people using head-mounted cameras and cycling alongside people and interviewing them kind of in situ, very much in the moment, uh, to try and get, I think, those more subtle, Aspects of being active and being movement that you might not necessarily talk about so easily in a more rehearsed story that you tell in an interview uh, So again, I think useful at least from the my interest at trying to reach this kind of more sensory aspect of, of activity um, It's me in a rather nice day out on the Helford River <laughs> it's perks of the job uh, Okay, so a lot of this work has been done around projects looking at the interactions between nature, health and well-being. So there is a growing body of literature now looking at health and well-being outcomes for people who are spending time in green spaces, blue spaces, call them what you will, natures. Um, But certainly I think a critique of that literature has been the assumption that if that's if those spaces are available people will use them and then people will access those health and well-being outcomes and we kind of can see that that's not really the case. So certainly these mobile methods I think lend themselves to understanding the more everyday sort of situated practices and habits that people are building up around their kind of movement patterns and their sense of emplacement if you like. So for this um, we used a this method called geonarratives this is very much led by my phd student sarah bell um, and ben wheeler who was also involved in the supervisory team who is the kind of quantitative guy this was an interesting kind of mixed method project where we used accelerometry data global positioning systems worn on the wrist and then um, map based interviews as well so People would walk, we'd pick up kind of obviously where they'd gone, the speed at which they were travelling, which is indicated through the spacing of the dots there. And again, within an interview setting, this became a really useful discussion device to think about where do people kind of linger, where do they walk fast, uh, where are the places that they avoid, are there any places that are missed, that they, you know, missing kind of within their local environment, etc.? And then a subset of the sample, it was quite a large group, we then conducted go-along interviews with. Um, so again, walking with them on a, a route or a place that they had identified as being particularly impactful on their sense of well-being, and just trying to kind of tease out um, the specifics of that. So again, a kind of a really interesting study. I think the challenge of doing something like that is just the volume of data you get. You know, you end up with lots of maps, lots of transcription and trying to kind of... It's like anything when you have loads of data, isn't it? Like, order it, manage it, make sense of it is, is tricky. But I think the layering um, and introducing that movement and the use of the environment around people is, is kind of really useful there. So... Um, As I started off by saying, there's kind of, you know, are we advancing methods within qualitative health research? There has been so much emphasis on interviews, on focus groups. There is a little bit of a backlash or a critique at least because of that. There's certainly a plethora of other techniques, other methods that we can use to gather data. Do we need to then discard interviews I don't think so you can see we still use them very much in our work but we're just trying to bring in some of this creativity on top but there's obviously other things that we need to consider along the way and i think a really interesting point that's been made by nettleton and green certainly others they're not the only people um, is what are we when we're talking about innovation it's we don't necessarily need more data we don't need to collect more data in more fancy ways um, with the fads and fashions We have incredibly rich data through our interviews, through our focus groups. What we need is kind of innovation through theory and not to keep using our data to just reconfirm kind of what we already know, but actually build, advance, understand more fully um, how people are doing things, why people are doing things, where people are doing things and the consequences. A similar point can be made in relation to analysis. So again, there are challenges as soon as you start to use different techniques, you end up with these different forms of data. And are we lagging behind a little in understanding how we might then analyse it when we end up with all this fancy stuff, photos, maps, plots <laughs> um, on our desk? Just as there's been a kind of critique, I suppose, of a focus on uh, interviews from focus groups, so too has there been a critique on the overuse of a thematic analysis. There are lots of other ways of analysing data. Brown and Clark, who have obviously written a lot around this um, method, make the point that your thematic analysis can be your starting point. You know, yes, certainly use that to make sense of your data, the kind of broad brush approach of what's this data telling me, but then where might we build from when we've done that? What other things can we do on top to bring in these additional interpretations? There's also innovations, you might call it, to be made in terms of how we represent our data. So for ourselves, um, using film has been really useful. We've also, you know, alongside the journal articles and what have you, which are important, um, produced key findings booklets. There's some at the back of the room, which you're welcome to take at the end. Um, but there's drama, poetry, dance... A real range there, and if you're not familiar with it, and you're interested in the area, certainly the work of Pia Contos in Canada around dementia, I think, has been really forward-thinking um, in relation to this. But then, of course, how do we appraise? Uh, how do we judge the quality of this innovation or these new forms of data tools? I had to obviously plug <laughs> Veronica's work there uh, because it's a it's a valid question isn't it it's not the case that anything goes oh it's new it's shiny it's novel I've got a fancy bit of kit therefore it's good and it's helpful Um, but are we lacking a little bit in terms of how we appraise how we understand the different ways in which we might um, understand the quality of these different forms of data and then to go back to that idea of you know, the culture of newness um, and the pressure to be innovative, whether it's on a, in a grant application or whether it's when you're pitching a new book and you're making the case of why this is different to all the other books on this topic. Uh, and Travis notes that we've kind of responded to this pressure Uh, to to innovate in two very sort of different ways. On the one hand, it's a cause for celebration. There are all these other things available at our fingertips now that we can draw from. It's a very exciting time, I think, to be doing qualitative research. Then there's also the the response where people become very defensive of their disciplines and, you know, almost don't want to over-celebrate it. And I think that's very real connections with the there is nothing new here. This has been done before. It's just old wine in new bottles. And alongside those, um, that kind of response of defending one's discipline, I think there's certainly been the critique of, you know, almost getting so caught up in the glitz <laughs> of, of a new technique that you're triv- trivialising the real issues underpinning a, a research area. Uh, and the long-standing problems that are perhaps more difficult to tackle, and certainly when we're thinking about older adults and when we're thinking about trying to encourage or support older adults and becoming more active. I always like to bring these um, statistics from the Age UK, Later Life in the UK report. Uh, we shouldn't forget, you know, 1 million cut back on food shopping to cover their utility bills. 25,000 can die of the cold each year. 2.9 million old adults feel they have no one to turn to for help and support. And, um, you know, just really emphasising the importance of remembering that um, when you just sort of consider these issues as an individual issue and that a sort of fancy film and a few photographs that are going to make people stop and think are going to address these problems, they're certainly not. So it's really over to you. Are we really advancing qualitative methods um, within health research? What would that involve? What does advancing actually mean? Is it necessary? And what's at stake if we take it on board, how would you respond to these kind of new the, the pressure to innovate? And that's really all I had to say. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs>